Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. This year, there are so many movies to look forward to from the Cannes Film Festival that I just can't seem to stop myself from podcasting every day. Today, we'll hear about the new film from Joanna Hogg, The Souvenir Part 2. Hogg's movie continues the portrait of an artist begun in The Souvenir, again starring Honor Swinton Byrne and Tilda Swinton. We'll also talk about Drive My Car, a Haruki Murakami adaptation from Ryosuke Hamaguchi, who's perhaps best known for his films Happy Hour and Asako 1 and 2. And finally, a strong entry from Mohamed Salah Haroun called Lingui the Sacred Bonds, a drama which goes in some unexpected directions. My guest this time is making his first appearance on The Last Thing I Saw, and I couldn't be more pleased. Guy Lodge. Guy writes for Variety and recently started a weekly review called Film of the Week. Let's hear now about the latest movies from Cannes. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw, talking about the Cannes Film Festival, the edition that everyone was hoping would happen, finally is happening, and I'm pleased to be able to talk about it with a regular of the festival circuit. So, uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome to the show Guy Lodge. Welcome, Guy. Oh, thank you so much for, for having me. I, I love this podcast. It's, it's great to be on. So what are you going to be doing this year? I, I know often you're writing for Variety. Are, are you writing for them as well? Or I will be writing mostly for Variety uh, at Cannes, but also um, my friend and colleague Catherine Bray and I recently launched a, a new little website called Film of the Week which consists of weekly film recommendations kind of based on the UK release calendar. But we're doing our kind of first special can edition. So we're, we're doing more, more film of the day than film of the week. We'll be doing kind of daily kind of short form recommendations from can as well. And maybe our own little podcast or two. So yeah, that, that'll keep us busy. Yeah, I've been a fan. I was an early adopter of the, the series when I saw you were starting that. And thank you for, you know, coming on the podcast, considering I'm sure you'll uh, be very busy. So, uh, I mean, just generally, we're kind of talking at an early stage in the festival. Well, I mean, what's it been like just being in Cannes in, in the town itself after, I guess it's now almost a year and a half or two years even? I mean, yeah, longer than two years since you yeah. know, the festival was normally in, in May and now it's in July uh, for, for this one crazy year. And you can already feel the difference when you step out of the bus and into the city because it's like it's hot um, and usually can is kind of you know there's this kind of springy warmth whereas here mm. it's just this instant kind of oppressive heat that hits you in the face and and uh, but it's just incredible to be here i think you know for many of us for the longest time even when can announced that they were going to happen in july we didn't quite believe that it could it could somehow happen and even though you know Last year, the Venice Film Festival managed to take place kind of in the midst of the pandemic after Cannes had, you know, had had to cancel. So we did have some sense of what a festival in the COVID era might be like, but this still feels like a new chapter. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it, it's kind of joyous to be here. Um, and, you know, you can kind of just walking around the streets, you can sort of feel that everyone's just happy to be there as opposed to the usual <laughs> um, kind of can fatigue that you sense in most years where everyone's just like, oh, another year. Um, I think, you know, I, hopefully it will have kind of renewed everyone's enthusiasm for the festival. 
no, it's it, it's true, and it always sounds ridiculous for anyone hearing that it should be, you know, in any way anything less than spectacular to to be there. But it, it is, after all, you know, work yeah. and and a job, and it's and it's as far as festivals go, it's definitely more of a more of a grind just because of the pace, yeah, um, and and the volume and, yeah. and the importance of the films and. And I love the grind. To be clear, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for anything. But yeah, I, I think our, our energies have been renewed this year. Yes. Well, I was very glad to be able to talk to you because I, I knew you could talk about a movie that I had anticipated a great deal. It's kind of strange. It's it's an oddball in the sense that it is a follow up film that you might not expect, in, at least in art cinema. That is the Souvenir Part Two uh, from director Joanna Hogg. It was the opening film of Director's Fortnite. And I think, you know, already a film, it's hard to say with different films, but I believe this one was maybe readier earlier than, than later. I mean, maybe you'll know more about that. Yeah. Um, so definitely. And then obviously there have been little changes involved in, in the casting and that sort of thing. But I've already said too much. Um, I'll, I'll leave it to you to kind of uh, give a sense of what the movie's about and uh, what you thought. Well, I mean, I, I feel like such a hypocrite because here's me always railing against sequels and franchises and, you know, the dearth of original ideas. And <laughs> here, you know, my favorite film I've seen of Cannes so far and, you know, probably my favorite film of the year so far is a sequel, The Souvenir Part 2, which I think is, is just, you know, everything that fans of Joanna Hogg's first souvenir film, which was released two years ago, were hoping it would be. You know, and... We kind of knew it was coming because I think the first film ended with a kind of tease of, you know, this story will be continued in, in the souvenir part two, which I remember when I saw that and I saw that credit, I was like, is that a kind of joke or, or not? Because, you know, don't, don't raise my hopes. When that screen at Sundance, it got a laugh from the crowd. When that I, I imagine it would have done, yeah. Um, you know, but, but it was always planned. It's not that she filmed, she had filmed it already. It was definitely, it was going to be made next. Because as you said, there were some, there were some kind of casting switch rounds. At one point, Robert Pattinson was going to be uh, in it. And as it turned out, he was replaced with Harris Dickinson. You know, there were various other, very sort of intriguing names connected with it, which, you know, led us to wonder, you know, what exactly this follow-up to what was a very small, intimate, personal British film was going to be. And, and as it turns out, it's, it's more of the same and completely different at the same time. It follows directly kind of on from where the first one left off. And a, a spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the first film, but it, it ended on the death of the protagonist's lover, uh, who was brilliantly played by Tom Burke in the first film. And so here we kind of continue the, the journey of the protagonist Julie, who is kind of an alter ego for Joanna Hogg herself, because it's a, you know, it's a semi-autobiographical memory piece, kind of inspired by her own experience at film school in the eighties and and her experience of growing up both kind of academically and emotionally in that time. And so it kind of carries on her creative development while also kind of managing this very sudden and unexpected burden of grief that she's been given, which makes it sound like a something you know heavy or, or dull to deal with but as it turns out there's a lot of kind of very surprisingly kind of jagged and cutting comedy in the film and the sort of depths of, of of grief and pain are as deep as the release and, and euphoria of, of 
her kind of creative self-discovery is is high. So it really covers quite quite a spectrum, and I, I think it's an incredibly kind of moving and surprising work, and incredibly self-effacing as well because she you know it's it's hog facing up to i think what she saw as the limitations of her artistic ability and and her kind of political worldview as a young woman and and kind of looking back now kind of 30 years on and seeing how she's grown and it's all kind of realized with just extraordinary formal invention and and a land but it's really quite dazzling game she's playing with kind of editing and camera work and the shaping of scenes and the way some kind of, you know, cut off abruptly and, and jam bluntly into others. And other times there's sort of this total rhythmic flow going. It, mm. it feels very kind of very much a, a reflection of the kind of filmic sensibility that that Julie within the film is trying to attain herself. She you know, early on, she says to her, her film school lecturers that she wants to move away from realism to, to make a film that reflects life as she experiences it rather than as it really is, which is kind of an echo of something that her, you know, her boyfriend, Anthony, kind of instructed her in the first film. And it really does feel that Hogg has achieved that here. It's, it's an incredibly intuitive organic singular work it moves to a rhythm entirely her own mm. i'm so glad you brought up tom burke's characters you know that he, the fact that he had definite opinions uh, about her filmmaking of the mm. character in that film julie's filmmaking which is part of what made it so you know fascinating and kind of a tightrope act because you had this character who was obviously somewhat vampiric mm. on her uh, emotionally and also professionally because he was such a probably somewhat apt critic, but also, you know, obviously a harsh one. And just at the point when she's kind of perhaps a li- very sensitive uh, as a growing, you know, artist, yeah. the scenes between her and Tom Burke almost define uh, a lot of uh, the first part, you know, especially that kind of wonderful, you know, widescreen shot when they're fir- having their first tea or lunch mm-hmm. or, uh, and, and, you know, it's always the first, they're barely moving. They're like a talking painting yeah. in a way. Well, I think what's unexpected, I'm quite pleased that she's done about this one, is she hasn't, you know, the souvenir was ultimately very much a relationship study. And she hasn't replicated that by kind of substituting the, the Tom Burke character with, you know, an equivalent male figure. It's mostly a solo piece. This one's very much focused on you know, on Julie's emotional and, and psychological development. And so she kind of shoulders the whole thing quite squarely, which is, I think, a real coup for, for Honest Winston Byrne, who was so lovely in the first film, but was kind of up against this kind of overwhelmingly dominant performance by Tom Burke, who's kind of, you know, appropriately given the character, kind of, you know, consumed almost all the oxygen in the film. And, and here you kind of feel her breathing and kind of stretching out on the screen. So it's, there is no kind of equivalent relationship or, or interplay to that. It's more you sort of see the, the network and the patchwork of, of her smaller relationships and, and the support system you know, that she has to, you know, to cope with this tragedy that she's going through or, or the support system that she doesn't have in some cases. So, you know, we have more scenes of her with her mother played by Honest Winton Burns' real-life mother, Tilda Swinton, which was so kind of beautifully played in the first film. And that continues here, but it's sort of very much on the same sort of scale and, and, and you know, same presence as in the first film. And we see Richard Ayoade, who had 
you know, a hilarious one-scene cameo in the first film, gets a slightly expanded role here as a kind of fellow filmmaker whose sensibility is entirely opposite to hers and, and you know, by extension to Joanna Hogg's and is initially kind of a figure of high comedy and who but turns out to be a kind of a truth teller to, to Julie in, in ways she hadn't quite considered or, or expected. So I think what I like about it is that, you know, she hasn't just replicated the kind of story, shape and structure of the souvenir with, with a different relationship. It has its own kind of motor and, and shape entirely, and it's very much driven by one woman this time. In the end, as it turned out, like the casting and, and then replacement of, of Robert Pattinson was a bit of a red herring because it turns out that that was ultimately quite a, you know, quite a secondary role. And I think it's one of the lovely surprises of the film is how it, how the role that he would have played and that Harris Dickinson plays kind of takes shape and develops and then kind of defies the way you think it's going to develop. She's really kind of playing against expectations here, I think. I mean, it sounds about as ideal as a continuation, but variation as, as, yeah. as one could expect. Um, and I, I think it's also such a great film to have at Cannes as as a piece of very original personal filmmaking. I guess that's sort of a cliche phrase to use, yeah. but that's often the province of established kind of masculinist lion filmmakers of a sort. Yeah. And she's completely carved out her own territory here. I mean, the the idea of her being frank about her filmmaking abilities or in any way, at any point, in doubt about it, is just, you know, hilarious thinking about her body of work, which, you know, still has the quality of like, a, uh, at least in the U.S. to a certain extent, of an Atlantis. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, it's it's one of the greater oversight is too light a word for it yeah. uh, in terms of distribution in the U.S. that it took so long. And I think it was only through certain like one week runs uh in in new york somewhat after the fact of a couple of her features so uh i don't know i I almost hope that this film is also an occasion for retrospectives of her work yeah well as it turns out the the french were even further behind than the u.s because i believe that only now has the first souvenir film gotten french distribution kind of off the back of uh, the second film being selected for Cannes. that's crazy yeah, I know it's absolutely, you know, absolutely mad. And it's, uh, you know, I really hope that now that they are, I think what's always going to be seen as as an inseparable kind of double work, um, that it, it kind of continues to build and find a following over the years. I really do think it's, you know, it, it's one of the great achievements in, in British cinema of the last, you know, of the century so far. Um, and as, as you say, you know, Joanna Hogg's oeuvre so far is so kind of, assured and defined and distinctive and it's lovely to see a a work by a filmmaker like that about you know about how she (laughs) literally kind of tracing how she got there you know from the days when she wasn't at all assured or practiced and and had no idea kind of what stories she wanted to tell it's a very brave subject to to take on in the film yeah and and I mean, it, this is obviously a very different work, but for some reason, I just flashed to Faces and Places, Agnes Varda, yeah. in terms of just the level of reflection and the willingness to make yourself vulnerable in a way and in your reflections, which is a, also, I think, a special quality. And um, just quickly, uh, if we can just linger for just another minute, I'm curious if you can say anything about the formal kind of qualities or, uh, you know, the, the cinematography or anything like yeah. that. Uh, yes, well, I'm... Um... She has retained the 
you know, the same creative team from the first film and the cinematographer, David Radeker, who I think did such, you know, beautiful work on, on the first film, kind of continues in that vein here with that same very kind of limpid lighting and, and you know, natural incorporation of it. Every, every scene feels kind of naturally shot by, you know, by the British land, by the British climate, which is, which is to say overcast mostly, but never, never kind of generically kind of gray or dull. I think he, he finds kind of, he finds light in drabness somehow, which I, I, I think is such a remarkable thing to do. And it's all shot on, on Kodak as kind of befits, I think, her, as, as a kind of a tribute to her early kind of film school days. And then at a kind of climactic point, which I don't want to kind of give away too much, but the film sort of, I don't want to call it a dream sequence because that sounds incredibly banal and, and it, it, you know, it's open to interpretation as to what exactly it is. But within the context of the film, it feels almost like a dream ballet. And suddenly the film kind of enters this completely different kind of aesthetic realm with these kind of saturated colors and these, you know, stylized production design. And, and it sort of feels like, you know, the film that Julie has had perhaps in her head throughout that she'd been wanting to make and hasn't quite been able to, you know, to craft. And, and it feels like Joanna Hogg has crafted it for her in that point. And that is when all the kind of the, the technical virtues of the film can absolutely reach kind of a kind of bliss together it's it's really stunning this yeah this obviously seems like an absolute highlight of, of the festival and, and nice to have it you know opening director's fortnight and being kind of top of the agenda i hope for everyone attending so that's the souvenir part two from joanna hogg which i guess is uh, already with a24 so that i will be wending its way uh, at some point uh, to to theaters in the, in the u.s and elsewhere uh, we, we had been talking about, you know, which films to cover. And I think there was another movie that you also are a fan of and also a, a you know, a filmmaker with a wholly uh, distinctive voice as well, who also, I mean, if there's a common point, I guess it would be that both of them are uncompromising, whether it's the, the scale or the warp and weft of their narratives. And that film is Drive My Car, the new Hamaguchi film. Well, for, for starters, it's an adaptation, which I think is a first for Hamaguchi. Uh, I could be wrong about that. Um, but it is an adaptation of a Haruki Murakami short story, also called Drive My Car, which was published a couple of years ago in the, in the volume called Men Without Women. So that's you know, already kind of a, a surprising and sort of unexpected pivot for Hamaguchi's kind of take on not just an adaptation, but, but one of a work by such a kind of well-known literary voice. And the, the story itself is, you know, I, I think it's, you know, less than 40 pages on the page. And it's, it's kind of a miniature and it's about a theatre actor who for various kind of complicated circumstances uh, is no longer permitted to drive his car himself and has to hire a driver for the period that he's doing this one kind of production at the theatre. And ostensibly, it's a kind of building character study of the relationship between him and the young woman who, who was hired as a driver, which then kind of expands into a lot of kind of back and forth memories reflecting on 
his past marriage and the death of his wife and the various unresolved kind of relationship problems that that has left behind and in turn the the girl's own childhood trauma and as they kind of confide in each other they they manage to kind of process emotions that I think they've been sort of stifling for for a very long time so it's a you can see why Hamaguchi was drawn to it because he you know, he tends to favor fairly kind of woolly, discursive, feeling-driven kind of ensemble pieces. And he's duly taken this very small, concise story and blown it up into a three-hour intimate epic, which, you know, three hours by, by his standards is on the modest side of running times. But it doesn't feel that he's stretched the story kind of overly thin. He's actually He's reshaped this and reimagined it quite extensively and, and brought in a number of additional plot elements that still feel, you know, entirely kind of true and organic to, you know, to, to the themes of the original work. That's the basic pitch of it. Mm. What do you think as an adaptation makes Drive My Car a more, more effective entry? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, I, I, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I think Tran and Hung came a bit unstuck when when trying to film Norwegian Wood, which I think was a very beautiful and quite emotionally kind of inert movie. And I think the difficulty with, you know, Murakami is he's, you know, his style is quite minimalist, but he's also incredibly emotionally direct and expressive and quite blunt a lot of the time. And I think, you know, more sensualist filmmakers can kind of struggle to work with that balance. I think he's quite well suited to Hamaguchi, who is a restrained filmmaker, but also quite an emotionally, quite an emotionally direct one. His films are kind of rooted in more, in a way, televisual traditions of, of drama. Hamaguchi can even kind of tend towards melodrama in the good way. You know, I think a lot of people use melodrama as a, you know, as a negative in itself, which is, you know, completely unfair and untrue. He's quite emotionally declarative. And I think... What he has obviously responded to in this Murakami story is the way the two lead characters eventually, you know, speak their feelings and, and their traumas very directly to each other. And that can be difficult to, to pull off well in film. It can sometimes seem just sort of, you know, overwritten or contrived or, or you telling rather than showing. But I think it works here because he plays it against the, the running device of the actor, who he's actually turned here into a theatre director and actor who's mounting a kind of multilingual production of Uncle Vanya in Japan. And he plays that sort of emotionally expressive nature of the story against the theatricality of the Chekhov play they're doing. And I think he uncovers something quite special in, in, in that overlap. It's not subtle, but it feels very honest and very true to me. And I was, in, I, was, I was very moved. And even though it's a small story that's been, you know, extended to three hours in length with, you know, lots of very detailed kind of conversation and you know, very pause-heavy conversation, as, as you would expect at that run of time, I was riveted throughout. Even though I had read the source material, I didn't have a sense of exactly where he was going to go with it. And I think that's what you always want in a, in a good adaptation. You want to feel that, you know, a different storyteller has taken hold. And that's the case here. Yeah, I think that's a great way to formulate it. I mean, in terms of adaptations, yeah, you don't want to feel that you're just going down a familiar path and, you know, seeing if, how it compares to what you already know, but that, yeah, yeah somehow they're making a, a new path. 
it's kind of remarkable. I guess this is a second world premiere in one year for Hamaguchi, um, which I mentioned just because, I mean, that's always kind of an, an accident uh, mm-hmm. of, you know, a festival timing. But just because his earlier one this year in Berlin, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, I thought was also just, a, you know, a major uh, work for him because it just entered these different no man's lands of, of, of like emotional extremity. Yeah across its, you know, three stories and without feeling uh, as if it was losing momentum at any time or giving short shrift to any one of the particular chapters. And that's a movie that I feel sort of left by the wayside. So I wonder what's going to happen in the fall uh, as different festivals have both of these films to think about. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, as you say, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy is such a kind of expansive and knotty work. And my assumption when I saw that, you know, this one was coming right on its heels was that it would be a kind of a trifle or palate cleanse. And when I read the story, I was like, oh, well, this fits. He's kind of, you know, doing a little small contrasting piece to amuse himself. And as it turns out, it's a every bit, if not more as kind of hefty and fully imagined and, and weighty as, as Wheel of Fortune and have done them, you know, back to back. I have no idea what the kind of, you know, production timeline between the two of them was, but it feels really remarkable. And, you know, his career is still quite young in, in international auteur terms. And yet I think, you know, he's already built up quite a, a really substantial and distinctive body of work. I'm excited to see, you know, where, where he grows from here. I am as well. And I, I mean, it's almost as if, you know, I think a lot of people first came across him with Happy Hour, mm-hmm. uh, which might have seemed to some people like, very much a specialty, <laughs> specialty yeah. cinema kind of thing. Um, but I think that was, it just happened to be the form that, that he chose there. And, you know, I was a fan also of Asako 1 and 2, uh, which I, I guess was his last feature at Cannes in 2018. Yeah. Although I know not everyone was, including people I really, uh, really respect. I'm curious, did you like that one? or? I did like it. I mean, it, it felt a lot lighter than kind of his other films. But I, I, I again, I'm not using light as a, pejorative there was something really kind of airy and kind of bracing about it and you know the way it kind of plays with the form and the rules of of romantic comedy in a way I thought was you know really lovely and 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 delightful but yeah as you say it didn't quite take hold or kind of form a following the the way his you know the way happy hour certainly did even though it was you know it's certainly a more easily approachable film than happy hour yeah I don't know. I, I, I quite liked uh, Asako. It for, it was kind of a perfect movie about romantic folly, yeah. basically. And just, you know, as, as few other films did, it, it got, it went to the, to the very edge <laughs> of, of everything. But uh, Drive My Car, uh, that's in the competition? That is in competition. His second film in, in competition at Cannes. So, you know, he's racking them up. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that's Drive My Car, of Raisuki Hamaguchi. And for our third film on this episode, uh, another thing again entirely, and that is a new film from Mohamed Salah Haroun called Lingui, The Sacred Bonds. Yeah. And I mean, this is a filmmaker that, I mean, to be totally honest, I kind of had kind of crept off, off my radar a little bit uh, in the yeah. past decade. Um, I mean, definitely, you know, like everyone, I was very... In- uh, intrigued by the screaming man which is now a while ago yeah but um I, w- I was intrigued by by this one and how to put this i mean from the description i read it was not 
that film exactly, at least the way that description you know, like usually comes across in festival catalogs or, or that sort of thing. It, it might lead you to expect a different movie than this, uh, which I yeah. think is a, a thornier and you know, altogether more surprising movie. Um, yeah. And also not one with any preconceived agenda. It, it really seems as if it's wrestling and the characters are wrestling with things, um, you know, as, as you are, when, when, as one is or as yeah. I was while watching it. But yeah, it is basically about a mother and daughter uh, in Chad, and the mother is... We open on her in this really extraordinary shot, I guess stripping tires, basically, for, if I understood correctly, like metal rims, which maybe yeah. then, I guess, are, can be resold for scrap. And it's a it, it just uh, knocked me flat, this image of just labor and... Just physically, it was an interesting thing to watch as well. Um, it's not like your usual establishing shot uh, or yeah. opening shot. Um, so, but it really got across because it, it lasts a bit. Just the physical toll and, and the physical labor that she is doing to keep herself and her family afloat. And so she's facing, you know, the just the the toil of that. But also, I guess a neighbor who is polite way of saying trying to marry her, but is sort of overbearing coming on to her when, you know, invites her to his workplace. Um, and then she has a daughter who is a teenager uh, in a parochial uh, school or yeah. just, and basically, you know, she learns uh, eventually she, she learns that uh, the daughter is, is pregnant. And I guess what was so interesting to me, or part of what was interesting, was that it starts off with the mother seeming a very traditional conservative role, uh, mm. and uh, and the daughter, uh, one almost expects that the da- it's going to be a, kind of a story of rebellion, and it's going to be leaning more towards the daughter, you know, trying to, you know, forging her own path. And she is an interesting character, and very outspoken, and, you know, I, she could have a whole movie of her own, maybe a part two for this movie. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting to me is that the movie ends up kind of tacking back to the mother who, you know, it emerges, went through something similar, uh, just in terms of being a young mother and it kind of triggers a reflection for her and, and just a kind of, I don't know how to put it, just kind of, for me, it just felt like she just said, well, you know what? Fuck it. (laughs) You know, uh, because she's basically like, she tries to toe the conservative line and then wants the best for her daughter. And, you know, still things are really, really difficult. And, and she sees the double binds that are ahead. Yeah. Um, and she actually, it's a movie where I, I don't want to give too much away about what exactly yeah. that, that means. But watching that development and that kind of that possibility in that, you know, that she is able to find that in herself and pursue that uh, was very exciting to me. And so, yeah, it was a movie that uh, I was, yeah, I guess happily surprised. And I should just clarify, it's not like I think any movie about a topic like this or quote unquote about something is going to be that way for me. But I think it's just sometimes even the way scripts are developed for movies in, in, in labs or wherever they tend to get kind of the interesting parts hacked off or streamlined yeah. or decomplicated. And I didn't feel like that was happening in this movie, which also looks absolutely beautiful. I'll just mention yeah. that. But uh, what did you make of it? What did you think of it? Like you, I was expecting, especially from Haroon, who is a good but sometimes quite didactic filmmaker, I was expecting a a fairly, you know, affecting but standard issue movie about abortion. And and while the film, I think, ultimately takes a a, a pro-choice stance, it's, as as you say, it 
it's not nearly so simple or, or so earnestly single-minded as that. As you say, what's, what's really interesting about it is that it winds up focusing less on the woman receiving the abortion than her mother and, and the not just the kind of emotional struggle of, of you know, um, helping her daughter through the situation, but a, a, a change in thinking and the, the gradual kind of courage to, to reject the status quo because she begins by opposing the, the daughter wants an abortion, the mother opposes it because it's forbidden by, by their religion, they're both Muslim. The mother's quite enthralled to the very patriarchal local mosque. There's a, there's, you know, there's a local imam who regularly kind of visits to offer what I suppose might be seen as support, but also feels like sort of almost uh, a possessive guardianship. And the, the loveliest arc in the film is her gradually realizing that, you know, she, you know, she went through this herself as a teenage mother and, and ultimately what, what good has it really, you know, brought her apart from a daughter that she loved very much. And, you know, why should her daughter not be able to kind of question or, or ask for something different? So in, in that respect, I, I thought it was a very unusual take on, on a story that we think we'd seen many times before. And, you know, I'm, if, if it sounds like I'm giving away a lot, I'm only really sort of talking about, you know, a, a small part of what happens in a film that takes, you know, a lot of very, you know, stark and surprising terms. I, I think also what was particularly unexpected from, from Haroon, is, uh, who has mostly, I think, especially his recent work has been mostly quite male-focused and the, the, the overwhelmingly kind of female point of view that, you know, dominates throughout here and feels to me very, very kind of sympathetic and lived in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with the, the lived in feel and also I think just giving a different shape from scene to scene um, mm. and and different kinds of moments from their lives. So it doesn't feel as well that the whole thing is just, you know, just kind of this march, you know, once yeah. once you figure what things out. And I thought that was that was remarkable and and just generally in many ways a, a kind of reserved film, I guess I'd say, considering, you know, at times at times I felt like I was receding into the kind of reflective space, mm. into the interior space of Amina, the mother. And so that was also an accomplishment of the filmmaking and, 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 yeah. the, and the actress as well. Yeah, the film gives us a lot of space to do that as well, because, I mean, as you mentioned, it's a very beautiful film. It's quite extraordinarily shot. There's some image making, especially in terms of the kind of color treatments, is is quite dazzling. I mean, because they live in an urban town that's kind of you know in in a hundred shades of kind of ochre and dust, and then it kind of plays against the saturated colors of of the fabrics and the shawls that they wear, and and the the lighting of their skin, especially at night, often kind of playing against light and neon. It's it's really stunning. But what he often gives us is kind of long extended close-ups without kind of dialogue or commentary that, you know, that just allow us to kind of read the characters' faces and, and, and in turn, you know, share their thinking and, and, and reflect with them. This, to me, does feel like something slightly different from Haroon and, and a slightly more restrained patient filmmaking. I agree with that, yeah. Again, I'm having a kind of uh, flash to, to another film here and... I don't know if you uh, you had a chance to see Delphine's Prayers, this 
documentary from actually a Cameroonian uh, filmmaker, right? I guess right next door to Chad, Razine Mabakam, who was having a retrospective at MoMA in New York. And Delphine's Prayers is about, it's basically a monologue film. It's just a, it's, it's pretty incredible about a, an, a, a woman who emigrated from Cameroon to Belgium, to Brussels, I believe. And a lot of what she recounts about why she left and what she was facing at home and, you know, patriarchal pressures and violence sort of came to mind after I watched this movie. It's very similar um, in many ways. So it's kind of an interesting, that's a documentary, um, but uh, this this is fiction, but there's obviously a great deal of social realism um, in, in it. I've never had a chance to see Delphine's Prayers. I've heard lots of good things about it. I'd love to catch up with that, especially now that, you know, if it would make for a kind of interesting counterpoint to this one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, and I, I don't want to suggest that generalize about either either society, but it, it, did, it did seem to have some common points in their experiences of these two, of these two women. But um, I think uh, probably uh, there there are more movies that you're about to rush out and see, so I won't uh, won't take out any any more of your time. And uh, but that was Lingui, the Sacred Bonds. Glad we could we could talk about that as well, since in some ways that feels like a movie that might actually get get lost in in the yeah. I, I really bustle. hope the distributor finds it. I mean, African cinema always gets the you know, the short end of the stick out of festivals and, and this one really deserves exposure. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, looking ahead to the the second week of the festival, uh, historically where the often, you know, there, there are two or three really huge films coming out and this year is no different. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, what, what particularly are you looking forward to? Well, I am very excited to see... Uh, Titan, the new film by Julia Duconal, who made a big splash with her debut at Cannes a couple of years ago called Raw. And I was on the London Film Festival jury that year that also gave it, uh, we gave her the best first film award. So I, I feel very invested in her and I'm, I'm hoping this is as daring and, and disgusting and spectacular as, as Raw was. <laughs> and I'm, I think we're all looking forward to Memoria, the new Apichat Pong we're ethical, um, which is, you know, his first uh, feature-length collaboration, at least with uh, Tilda Swinton, who is, seems to be on a mission to check off every major kind of international auteur going and, and doing yeah. very well on that front. So, you know, between that and, and the souvenir part two, she is having quite a festival. And, uh, and the new Justin Kurzel film, Night Tram, which, you know, hopefully... Given that you know he's been selected for competition in Cannes, I'm assuming he's bounced back from the the real disastrous misstep of of the Assassin's Creed movie, um, and hopefully making something you know close in in spirit and quality to Snowtown, which I still think is an extraordinary film. So lots lots to look forward to still. Yes, yeah, and then he he did uh, a Macbeth adaptation, right? That was also he did, which was in competition at Cannes. Uh, maybe five years ago. And I was in the minority, I think, that really, uh, really dug that one. It was divisive. Though. Yeah, I, I remember it being uh, divisive. And also, I remember being sort of surprised that people were knocking it so hard. I don't know mm. what exactly that was about, because I did think that there was, there was a lot that was pretty visually interesting about that yeah. movie. Um, so yeah, Nitrum is coming up right on the, I guess, 
um, last screening day uh, or premiere day of the festival, or I guess not technically since we have an OSS movie to look forward to. Well, yes, there, there is that too. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, the whole span of cinema before us. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, so I, I hope we can do this again sometime and uh, I, I hope you have a great uh, rest of the festival. I would love that. It's been such a pleasure. And yeah, absolutely. Uh, soon, I hope. Yes. Um, and then I'm just going to uh, repeat a little plug for uh, uh, Guy's reviews in Variety and also the film of the week uh, with Catherine Bray, which you can subscribe to. So Guy, thanks. Thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.